This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The story of Alexander the Great has inspired conquerors and would-be conquerors throughout history. Alexander sweeped through the Middle East and Central Asia, left behind evidence of his mark on history, namely in the several cities that he founded and those that sprung up to govern the kingdoms he left behind. One man looking for evidence of Alexander was Charles Masson, a deserter from the East India Company who reinvented himself as an archaeologist and scholar in Afghanistan. Academic, traveler, writer, and unwilling spy, Masson's story is told in Professor Edmund Richardson's book, Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City. Edmund Richardson is a professor of classics at Durham University. He has published Classical Victorians, Scholars, Scoundrels, and Generals in Pursuit of Antiquity, and was named one of the BBC's New Generation Thinkers in 2016. We're also joined today by David Chaffetz, who's a regular contributor to the Asian Review of Books and the author of Three Asian Divas, Women, Art, and Culture in Shiraz, Delhi, and Yangzhou. Today, Ed, David, and I will talk about Charles Masson and his experiences in Afghanistan. We'll talk about what drove this man to embark on his archaeological calling and how his story meshes with the story of the East India Company and Afghanistan. And we'll end, perhaps, on what Massey's story and observations teach us about how to understand Afghanistan today. So, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Perhaps it's best to start with the main character of the book. Who was Charles Masson, and why write a biography about him? So, Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's an absolute honor. Now, Charles Masson wasn't actually born with that name. He was born James Lewis, who's an incredibly ordinary working-class boy from London, born at the turn of the 19th century. And... But he's someone who, when he's a young man, he enlists in the army of the British East India Company, gets shipped out to India as a soldier, hopes to build a better life, hopes to build something for himself. Now that doesn't work, and he deserts from the British East India Company. And it's what happens next which really makes the story interesting. He turns himself into one of the most remarkable figures 
of 19th century scholarship. He turns into a traveler, into an archaeologist, into someone who discovers one of Alexander the Great's lost cities, and and someone who basically rewrites a lot of what we thought we knew about the early history of Afghanistan. This is a kind of forgotten figure who sort of dropped off the map of history. And what I was trying to do in this book was to kind of restore his voice and show how this incredibly sort of seemingly insignificant figure who wanders around on his own through the back roads of Asia actually turns out to be someone who really profoundly changes the world. So I'd like to maybe set the geopolitical scene, as it were. So what's the state of British rule over this part of the world during the period that that your book covers? So this is the period where the British East India Company is pretty well established. It's been spreading out from its coastal forts and trading stations for a long time now, and it's bullied, blackmailed, and deposed its way into control of much of India. This is a story which, of course, William Dalrymple tells wonderfully in his recent book, The Anarchy. So now the British East India Company is in control of most of India. And it's a very strange historical anomaly where one of the most you know, significant areas of the world is ruled for profit by a for-profit corporation headquartered in a very unassuming little building in East London. But the East India Company is not in full control of this part of the world. There are a number of very significant independent kingdoms and empires and rulers who resisted its dominion in Afghanistan, ruled at the time by Dost Muhammad Khan from Kabul, in Lahore, the seat of the great Sikh empire ruled by the Maharaja Ranjit Singh, and of course, further to the north where competing empires, most particularly Russia, were spreading south and east through Central Asia down towards Afghanistan and India. Ed, uh, you've identified this figure as one of the most remarkable uh, explorers and, and, and travelers and intellectuals in, of, of 19th century uh, Britain. Uh, and you pointed out that he started off life as a poor working class boy, basically ready to be a soldier of fortune. Uh, can you tell us what you learned about the workings of the, of the famous English class system at this time? And, and how that shaped James Lewis, Charles Masson's uh, destiny. You're right. Charles Masson's story is very much bound up in the workings of English society, which, of course, in the early 19th century does mean the class system. He was born on a pretty unremarkable street um, in the alleys around the Tower of London. And he grew up in a Britain which was basically economically devastated after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So there were a huge amount of, you know, people going bankrupt, people losing their homes, people losing their land, and an increasing sort of concentration of wealth and power within a few hands. Masson really found that despite being this, you know, searingly bright, searingly intelligent young man, there simply weren't opportunities for someone like him. At the time, it was almost impossible for someone 
from a working class background to get into university to really have any kind of measure of social mobility. So what he does is he hopes to build a better life for himself. He hopes to kind of find find you know fame and fortune, if you will, by enlisting in the East India Company. But after a few years, he realizes that that isn't going to work for him either because the British class system has been transplanted to India. He's an ordinary soldier, which means no one pays any attention to him. No one really cares about him. He teaches himself Latin and Greek, and this is in an era where most ordinary soldiers couldn't read and write, right? So he's incredibly sharp. He's incredibly bright. And in the modern day army, someone like that would be plucked out of the ranks, would be given officer training, would be, you know, given these opportunities. But as far as the East India Company is concerned, Nassan simply isn't one of our kind of people. He, he's just not someone who gets to have these opportunities. So his desertion is, if you like, a kind of act of desperation. It's him, him trying to get control of his own story for the first time in his life. It's his, his attempt to sort of get beyond the boundaries of the English class system. And that's something which you see he's not unique in, in doing, actually. You see quite a few deserters from British and indeed European armies in turning up in India, turning themselves into soldiers of fortune, often making fortunes for themselves and kind of trying to rewrite their own stories in a way which the world just wouldn't permit them to do at the time. Yeah. He, he seems to have been a little bit late to the party because, of course, the generation before him managed to get jobs working for all of the airless uh, Indian principalities and, and very common people made huge fortunes uh, as generals in the armies of the Sikhs or the Marathas. Um, so he, he probably was about 30 years too late to do that. But as you say, his ambition in deserting was not so much to become a mercenary or, or uh, a warrior for, for, some other, for someone else's account, but it was, it was what? I mean, did he, did he want to become an archaeologist? Is that something people were already doing at that point? Archaeology was very much in its infancy at the time. Like people were still trying to figure out, you know, the lines between essentially archaeology and treasure hunting were pretty blurred. Um, several of the other early archaeologists that Masson came across were basically just sort of pickaxing their way through any kind of promising-looking ancient monuments in the hopes of finding, you know, something gold, something silver, you know, something something of obvious value, some treasure, some jewels. So it was, it was it was basically sort of landlocked piracy, essentially, just 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 grab what you can and and get out while you can, but. Obviously, archaeology, as we understand it today, is something different. It's about trying to understand the context of objects from the past and trying to use the objects that we find to understand the past in a holistic way more richly. And that kind of thing was very much still in its infancy. You get a a sort of version of that um, at the turn of the 19th century. Probably the most famous example is Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, where he goes to to Egypt with a whole crew of sort of scholars and intellectuals who, um, you know, which is very much, by the way, in imitation of Alexander the Great, who crossed to the East with this kind of crew of Greek scholars. Um, 
And when Napoleon scholars um, arrive in Egypt, they immediately sort of set to work grabbing pretty much everything they can. They sort of um, chip off obelisks. They um, they sort of sort of um, peer into pyramids. They grab um, the Rosetta Stone and uh, a sarcophagus that was meant to be Alexander the Great's tomb. Of course, it actually wasn't. They're very put out when um, the French army is trapped in Egypt by a British expeditionary force, and the British proceed to loot the French. The, the French expeditions loot and ship it all back. Um, this is this is actually the core of the British Museum's Egyptian collection. So so archaeology at the time is very sort of much in its infancy. It's very nationalistic practice, and it's very much about you know who gets to claim the legacy of the past and who gets to you know put it up in their you know infant museums and essentially sort of claim to be the heirs of the Greeks, the, the heirs of Alexander. Yeah, that's an extremely interesting point. And in your book, you talk about how how possession of the past somehow or another legitimizes some of the some of the uh, projects of the British, the French, and other European powers in in the new in the, the part of the world subject to their colonial a- ambitions. Um, but I want to stay on uh, Masson just a little bit more. And could you could you bring out for us how does a a simple soldier Okay, he's taught himself Latin and Greek, but how does he turn himself into an expert? There's no, there's no libraries, there's no Wikipedia, there's no other scholars. What did he do to become erudite enough to understand what he was looking for? That's a great question. And the answer is through one of the world's most painful processes of trial and error, basically. He lands up in Kabul in 1832. Um, and he starts asking around because he wants to find one of Alexander's lost cities, right? But he obviously, you know, deciding you want to find a lost city is, is very is all all very well and good. But what do you actually do next? Scholarship had no idea where this city was. It was called Alexandria beneath the mountains or Alexandria of the Caucasus. And Masson realizes that to find this place, he's got to be able to answer a question which no scholar has been able to solve for well over a thousand years. So what he does is he listens to stories. He listens to stories in the bazaars, and he keeps on hearing of ancient coins getting found on the plains of Bagram just outside Kabul. So so he basically, without access to a library, because as you say, there's no Wikipedia, the nearest uh, copies of like most useful books are several months travel away in India. He has to like beg friends and acquaintances in India to like copy out passages by hand and send them to him. What he has to do is just one moment at a time, one object at a time as he starts to discover things. Basically start to write what was at the time a completely unknown part of history. Basically, Western scholarship had pretty much no idea what happened in the thousand, the thousand years after Alexander the Great left Afghanistan. So what Masson has to do is one find at a time, one object at a time, start to date the sites that he comes across. So, for instance, when he comes across a site um, where there's a, a bunch of coins with a Roman emperor on it, once he can figure out the date of the Roman emperor, he can pretty much figure out roughly the date of the site to within, you know, a century or so post-quam, this coin. 
So one little piece of evidence at a time, one story in the bazaar at a time, he's basically filling in this blank page of history. And it's fair to say that when no one knows what's happening in a thousand years of history, it's pretty easy to turn yourself into an expert. You just have to know a little bit more than the next guy. And this is what Masson does. Gradually over the course of almost, almost a decade, he finds his way to basically filling in a whole picture of a thousand years or so of Afghan history, where there was pretty much just a blank canvas before. But it truly is a process of trial and error. The number of things he gets wrong, the number of things he has to rethink, the number of suppositions and claims that he makes, which basically a couple of days after he sends off an article to some friends in India, he realizes is completely wrong. It is truly one stumbling step at a time. It's it's a remarkable process. Now, let's talk about the difference in the importance of the story that he's putting together for the British elite and their project for India and the Afghan elite and their project for their empire in Afghanistan and in the Punjab. Um, how, how did the British and how did the Afghans react to the uh, stories uh, coming out of Charles Matson's work? So the British, predictably, swoon over the stories of Alexander the Great. Um, a lot of British colonial office, officers, officials in India and Afghanistan in the 19th century sort of really consciously tried to think of themselves as following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great. There's someone called Alexander Burns, whom Masson meets and spends a bunch of time with, who literally goes around calling himself the second Alexander. Right? And this is a way to, of course, give yourself a sense of grand purpose, a sense of you know, following in great footsteps, a sense of really being part of a glorious history, and also a way to kind of legitimate your own colonial enterprise, of course. So the British very much swoon over these tales of Alexander. The Afghans are fascinated by the discoveries, by the... Um, by the by by the by the by the relics that Masson finds, particularly the relics of what turned out to be Afghanistan's lost Buddhist history. Um, there's someone called Akbar Khan, who's the son of Dost Muhammad Khan, who's the ruler of Afghanistan at the time. And he and Masson often have tea together in the palace in Kabul and the Bala Hissar. And Masson shows Akbar Khan his finds, and they basically sort of have these long conversations about the past of Afghanistan. They're all they're sort of trying to fill in the gaps of the story, essentially, together. One thing that's also worth mentioning is that it isn't just the ruling elite of Afghanistan who are fascinated by and engaged with Masson's excavations. Masson ends up having to spend quite a lot of time um, as sort of trapped almost in Kabul because the East India Company blackmail him into becoming a spy. So a lot of his actual ex- the actual excavation work is carried out by Masson's Afghan collaborators. This turns into as much of an Afghan project, if not more, as it is a British project for a lot of the life of Masson's excavation. So there's a, there's a huge number of sort of Afghan 
colleagues, collaborators, friends of Masson who run a lot of the excavation sites and who are responsible for a lot of Masson's most remarkable discoveries. So there's a huge sort of fascination with the country's past and with what can be discovered about it. Masson is a little bit of a flawed character in your telling. Um, You sometimes, in your book, seem to be very uh, admirous of him, and sometimes you seem a bit frustrated by him. Can you say what you liked most about Masson, and what bothered you the most about him? And if you if you were having a drink with him, what would you what advice would you have given him? So what I liked about him is easy. It's the endless courage and curiosity. This is someone who basically spends years on their own, wandering the back roads of Asia and Afghanistan. He gets half frozen to death a bunch of times. He gets rubbed down to his underwear a bunch of times. He gets threatened with death more times than I can count. And yet he keeps going. This, uh, this, this idea that propels him forward, this wish to solve this mystery um, of Alexander's lost city, keeps him going where almost any of us would have given up and tried to retreat to somewhere warmer and safer and more pleasant. One can't help but admire him for that. There's, there's, I mean, I mean, there's a word in ancient Greek which often gets used to describe Alexander the Great. It's called pothos, right? It's this longing so great that it almost bursts your heart open. It's this desire for the impossible. And you see that very much with Masson, this yearning, this longing that carries him through these impossible difficulties and makes him keep going, even when he's basically half naked and frostbitten on an Afghan mountainside in the middle of winter. He just keeps going, and, and, and it's just impossible not to deeply admire that. In terms of the things that are a little more problematic, well, he's a compulsive liar. Um, he, he just makes up story after story after story about who he was and where he came from. Obviously, he's a, he's a, he's a deserter. He's on the run for his life, so you can kind of understand that as a survival mechanism. But when I, when I was going through his papers, when I was trying to tell his story, you, come at, you, you, you think you've got, you've got it sort of straightforwardly in place, the timeline where he actually was. And then you come across a little piece of paper with the timeline that you thought was correct written out, and then Masson's just gone through and he's crossed out the years and he's written different ones over the top. And you're like, oh, good God. Um, so this idea of... Um, this idea of like what his story actually was. This is not not a narrative that goes in straight lines. It's this kind of Tristram Shandyish thing that kind of loops and circles and breaks and um, kind of kind of keep keeps on doing doing somersaults. And you know you know you know when you when you think you've got it pinned down, like every single person who's written about Charles Masson in the past has made at least one major error on their own first page. And like this is this is pretty much impossible to avoid. Masson also, I think, got a little too preoccupied with pleasing the wrong people. He kind of wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be acknowledged by the British elite, by people who were never going to really give a deserter who later in his career really turned on the British elite, really turned on the British imperial project, really sort of wrote a series of books and articles which exposed the kind of chilly heart of the British colonial project. They were never going to kind of welcome him into their own, uh, as, as one of their own. And I think Masson kind of got a little too, too preoccupied by wanting to please people who were never going to kind of 
give him the time of day. And, and, and is that why his reputation went into such eclipse to the point where he does not figure in our pantheon of great British archaeologists or explorers and, and a kind of obscure figure? I think to an extent that's got to be right. His reputation before the first British invasion of Afghanistan is one of the most disastrous projects in British imperial history. And his reputation was stellar. He was thought of and spoken of highly. He was there were admiring articles in all the newspapers. He was thought of as, you know, one of the greatest scholars in Britain, one of the greatest archaeologists, someone who was who was just kind of about to become one of the immortals, if you like. And then when Britain invades Afghanistan, he's offered this post as chief of intelligence for the British. He refuses, he resigns, he goes off, he lives by himself in a hovel in the old city of Karachi. His heart is just broken by this invasion. And he writes this incredibly damning condemnation of the invasion and of British imperialism in general. And this is the kind of thing which was just not done at the time. It isn't just a sort of condemnation of British imperialism in in the abstract sense. He names names. He quotes damaging letters. He quotes supposed to be secret intelligence reports. And this just is not the done thing at the time. So this basically means when he gets back to London, his reputation craters. No one pays any attention to him. No one helps him. He finds it a struggle even to publish his book, the book which was meant to be set up as one of the greatest you know, stories of the 19th century, this thing that people were meant to be waiting for. But now no one wants to see it. No one, wants to, no one, no one cares about it. And the full machinery of the British establishment is marshaled against him. He's dismissed as this insignificant little man who never knew anything and never did anything. And that reputation just follows him around for over 100 years, sort of even in the 1950s, 1960s, we have historians um, saying, I, th- I, think, I think the quote, the quote was, he has done great damage to the reputation of better men. Right, um, all of the, all all of his archaeological achievements are swept aside, and he's basically sort of turned into a disagreeable footnote to history. So I think it's difficult to read the story of Massa and read the story of the British invasion of Afghanistan and not see certain parallels with later invasions of of Afghanistan, um, decades if not a century later. Um, what does Masson's story tell us about how we should understand Afghanistan today? So there's this heartbreaking quote in Masson's book where he says, when he's writing after the end of the British invasion of Afghanistan, when of this expeditionary force of thousands, only a bare handful made it out of Afghanistan alive. And Masson writes in the wake of this, and he says, it's to be hoped that the good sense of the British nation will prohibit such expeditions as the one beyond the Indus to be conducted with recklessness and levity. So he's hoping with all his heart that Britain will have learned its lesson from this invasion and that nothing of the sort will ever happen again. Of course, that's not how it has gone. 
in many ways, the first British invasion of Afghanistan was one which was ordered and was executed by people with almost no knowledge of Afghanistan. Masson knew more about Afghanistan and had spent more time in Afghanistan than literally everyone else in Britain and India working for the British government put together. But he's the one person they decide not to listen to. He's the one person they decide not to take along. It was the same, indeed, for Masson's colleague, Alexander Burns, that, that man who called himself the second Alexander. He didn't know Afghanistan as well as Masson, but he knew enough to know that invading was a terrible idea. Once again, he was ignored. And I think if there's a parallel to be found, it's of this incredibly damaging and reckless decision made by people who know nothing of the place, who've never spent a day in their life in Afghanistan, who know nothing of the history, who don't want to know anything of the history. Um, you know, it's it's the the old the old the old sort of rather 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 sorry saying. You know, we learn history so that we don't repeat it. Well, in fact, we learn history so that when we watch people repeating it, we can fruitlessly say, actually, what's going on is a bad idea. In terms of Masson's story, he was an outsider looking in and. For many years, we've seen parallels, you know, for instance, the great historian William Dalrymple warning for over 10 years of the dangers of invading Afghanistan recklessly. And I think we can, if, if there's a parallel to be found, it's in the unwillingness of governments and politicians to pay attention to the people who know these parts of the world, who spend time there the unwillingness of people to listen to inconvenient voices, voices who might not be part of the usual establishment, but nevertheless have knowledge and wisdom to bring to these conversations. So I think with that, thank you for listening to an interview with Professor Edmund Richardson, author of Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City. Ed, I actually have one more final question for you. Uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Thank you so much. Well, so the story of Masson, um, I turned into a book called Alexandria, the Quest for the Lost. Excuse me, can't even get my own book title right. This is uh, one of those days, but um, it's the story of Masson I turned into a book called Alexandria, the Quest for the Lost City, which is with Bloomsbury. And... What's next is probably a rather quixotic project. Um, I actually stumbled into telling Masson's story when I was trying to write about Alexander the Great, and I was trying to find a new way into telling his story, which I thought I could do through his cities. So um, I've been persuaded that um, it might be worth returning to this attempt to tell the story of Alexander the Great. Quite how to do it in a new way is something that I'm sort of grappling with at the moment, um, because of course you could fill an average-sized house with books about Alexander the Great, right? 2,000 years ago, the ancient historian Arian um, wrote as a preface to his his book about Alexander, 
why on earth would the world need another book about Alexander the Great? But um, that's what I'm going to try to do next. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, our podcast found on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Yasha Sweeney Chandra, author of The Tale of the Horse, A History of India on Horseback. But before then, thank you so much, Ed, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been an absolute honor.